Hello, I'm Oliver Colling, and this is my 70s TV childhood. Hello again, and welcome back to my 70s TV childhood. As always, it's lovely to have you with us, as we remember what life was like growing up as a child in Britain during the 1970s, and what a central part TV played in our childhoods. The UK might have been on its knees economically, with power cuts in three-day weeks, and we might all have been wearing orange clothes, but as long as we could get Champion the Wonder Horse and the Flashing Blade during the school holidays, everything was fine for us. Now, as I've said in previous editions, this podcast isn't meant to be a forensic reconstruction of what it was like watching television in the 1970s. Rather, we're a place to remember what it felt like. So I and my guests are bound to misremember certain things and make mistakes. Some of our listeners have picked me up on a few factual errors, which I won't go into now. So thanks for putting me straight. But please don't forget, the 1970s were a long time ago. None of us are getting any younger. And if I thought that one of the main characters in Children of the Stones was an archaeologist rather than astrophysicist, then it's not the end of the world, is it? I'm certainly happy to set the record straight. But relax, or chill, as I believe younger people now say. And you know who you are. As well as having had a few facts corrected, I've had quite a few questions from listeners asking if I can remember certain TV shows. For example, Sue emailed me recently and asked if I remembered a programme featuring a boy called Poe, who was sold into slavery in Saharan Africa which I have to say I don't, but I'm sure one of our listeners does. It is interesting that I do remember some TV programmes, but not others. So I'd like to have a My 70s TV Childhood question and answer session in a future episode, where we can go through your questions and hopefully find an answer to unlock those long-forgotten memories. If you have a programme that only you remember, and want to check whether you are dreaming or not, let me know. You can leave a message on our blog, www.my70stvchildhood.com, tweet at 70stvchildhood, or email me, oliver at my70stvchildhood.com. I'm really looking forward to some interesting questions. Well, enough of the future. Let's get back to the past. As I mentioned before, I grew up in and around Warrington in the northwest of England, and like most of us, a major landmark in my childhood was going to school. In my case, it was Padgate Church of England Primary School, where I started in January 1972. My first teacher was Mrs Dutton, who was a very kind, patient, older lady, who was in her last year before retirement. And I remember really enjoying school and being slightly confused by the children who seemed to spend most of our first term crying at one thing or another. I've recently discovered a few early class photographs, which I'll, I'll put up on the blog once this edition goes out. 
In these photographs, all of us look happy and excited. I do wonder sometimes what happened to everyone in Mrs Dutton's class. If you're one of the ones who was on my photograph, get in touch and let me know. They say school days are the happiest days of your life. Well, that might be true, but I'm not sure I'd want to relive them, as part of the fun is not knowing what happens afterwards. And I'm not sure any of us have ever been as carefree as we were during the early years of school. At that age, everything is a wonderful new discovery, and the enthusiasm and energy of a five-year-old is capable of finding amusement and interest out of virtually anything. As I progressed through the infant school classes of Mrs Dutton, then Miss Bryant and Mrs Edwards, certain things became regular parts of the school day. Morning assemblies were held every day and they were largely religious themed. Each class filed into the hall as a religious record played on the school record player. It was always the same album, Joy is Like the Rain by the Medical Mission Sisters who were apparently a group of American nuns. And often, it was the same song, whose words I can still remember to this day. I cannot come. I cannot come to the banquet. Don't trouble me now. I have married a wife. I have bought me a cow. I have fields and commitments that cost a pretty sum. Pray hold me excused. I cannot come. A certain man held a feast on his fine estate in town. He laid a festive table, then wore a wedding gown. He sent invitations to his neighbors far and wide. But when the meal was ready, each of them replied, I cannot come. I cannot come to the banquet. Don't trouble me now. I have married. Assemblies were just one memorable part of school life, as were visits to the headmaster's office. Our headmaster, Mr. Smith, who, I, as I've previously mentioned, looked just like Michael Barrett, the host of TV current affairs show Nationwide, was quite a character. If you had to take a note to his office, you had to step into a small room where you could hardly see across the other side of the headmaster's desk due to the permanent fog of cigarette smoke. He also used to send favoured pupils down to the local shop to collect more cigarettes if he ran out during the day. I wonder how that will go down in today's world of education. And what would Ofsted inspectors think about that? School dinner was a highlight every day, or perhaps a low light. From memory, the food at my primary school was pretty awful. Liver featured heavily in the menu, and we could always smell it from about 9.30 in the morning as it slowly cooked until it reached the required texture of shoe leather. We also had lots of pastry-based dishes, including pies cooked in enormous metal trays and cut into squares, with lumpy gravy and mashed potatoes, which were also quite lumpy from what I remember. I also remember we'd sometimes have meat pie, followed by some kind of fruit pie, also baked in enormous metal trays and cut into squares, which looked exactly the same from the outside as the meat pie we'd had before, and the custard which came with it was often the same consistency as the gravy. No Jamie Oliver to come to our rescue in those days. Another regular feature was PE in the school hall, which we had once a week to the accompaniment of BBC Radio's Music and Movement programme. Each infant class 
had a different day to go into the hall and be directed by a rather 1950s-sounding lady speaking RP English who told us to fly around like a bird or similar types of things. All very innocent fun and lots of running around and thundering on the gym floor. But that was not the only technical aid used to teach us. Oh, no. There were also lots of TV programmes made especially for schools, which were worked into the curriculum. And that's what we're going to think about for the rest of this episode. Today, multimedia study aids are everywhere, and education benefits from it greatly. In those days, television was still quite an exotic addition to the classroom, and the logistical feat required to get a class of 47-year-olds sitting down quietly at the right time to watch the right programme was quite something. So why was it so difficult? Well, the main thing to remember was that all TV had to be watched live. Until the late 1970s or early 1980s, most schools didn't have any access to video recording, so the programmes needed to be watched at the time of broadcast or not at all. There was also the question of how to get the television in the right place. I think we had one or possibly two televisions at my primary school, and they were big wooden framed boxes, sat on large unwieldy metal frames, a bit like scaffolding on wheels, which needed to be carefully transported from classroom to classroom according to a very tight schedule. They were also black and white rather than colour. Once the TV had arrived in the classroom, the hapless class teacher then had to find somewhere to plug in the set and, crucially, plug in the aerial cable. Every classroom had an aerial cable connected to the big external aerial on the school roof. Once the set had been connected and switched on, There was then an anxious wait for all as the set warmed up before, fingers crossed, a picture appeared. Quite often I remember buzzing pictures with interference and and usually mild-mannered teachers starting to hit the side of the TV in the vain hope that the right channel would somehow magically appear. For us children in the classroom, when the TV was wheeled into the room, the anticipation and excitement went off the scale. Often we wouldn't be told what we were going to watch. So, assuming our teacher managed to get the TV set to work, we all sat and waited expectantly. I'm not sure this applied to all of the programmes, but I do remember some of them actually had a countdown clock displayed on the screen, which was a gift to a class full of seven-year-olds. And we all used to count down, with noise levels increasing the closer we got to the programme starting. Five, four, three, two, one... And then the programme began. So were these TV shows any good? Well, it's worth thinking about what was happening in the TV world of the 1970s. As we've discussed in previous episodes, daytimes on BBC and mornings on ITV were bleak, empty spaces, into which programmes for schools and colleges fitted ideally. With no way of watching these other than at the time of broadcast, It made perfect sense for both BBC and ITV to use these dead hours to educate the youth of the nation. So in a world without Homes Under the Hammer or Phil and Holly on this morning, the schools programme was king. There were programmes covering every subject and aimed at every age group. 
There were science programs showing detailed practical lab experiments, documentaries on all kinds of subjects, historical dramas and reconstructions, and there were also many graphic sex education programs. In an age when some teachers felt, I think, it was far easier for the TV show to explain the facts of life to their pupils than it was for them. As a young child, the edges between what were, I suppose, normal programmes, and those made specifically for school use, were, were a bit blurred for me, and I didn't always know which was which. Partly that was down to the fact that many of those who featured in more mainstream programmes also appeared in the school's programmes. For example, I used to love watching Play School and Play Away, where Jonathan Cohen would appear and play the piano. But rather confusingly, he also played the piano in the BBC's Music Time, I think that's what it was called, which was in effect a classroom music lesson, but put on the TV instead. We also had the likes of Basil Rush teaching us to read, and, sorry to mention him again, Jimmy Savile popping up in programmes aimed at schools. This confusion meant that for many years I didn't realise that one of my favourite programmes on Schools TV wasn't a mainstream programme. And that programme was called Sam on Boff's Island, which I thought was amazing at the time. Do you remember that one? It appeared as a serial as part of the Words and Pictures programme, one of the BBC's long-running schools programmes, and dealt with a young man, Sam, played by the young Tony Robinson, later to become Baldrick, who was transported into a fantasy world whenever he gazed into his cereal bowl and saw his Weetabix-like breakfast as an island in a milky sea. The island was inhabited by the Boffs, a charming series of characters brought to life by the wonderful Oliver Postgate and Peter Furman. And Sam had lots of adventures with them, which invariably revolved around letters and words and learning new things about spelling and grammar. I think the reason I liked it so much, though, was the fact it stood on its own, as a good drama which engaged and entertained its young audience, whilst almost surreptitiously sipping in some great educational bits as well. But then I suppose that's exactly what the powers that be in educational TV programming wanted. Well done to them. One drawback about serials like Sam on Boss Island, and sorry, no pun intended with the serial reference, was that I and my schoolmates never got to see the complete series. As at our school, you never quite knew when you were going to hear the TV rolling down the corridor to your classroom. Sometimes we'd have two programmes in a week, and then other times we'd see nothing for weeks, making it all very unpredictable. In fact, I think I'm not alone in remembering that I saw far more schools programmes during the school holidays than I did when I was actually at school. Looking back, I suspect that sometimes the TV was used by teachers to give themselves a bit of a break or to vary the routine for what must have been a really difficult job keeping 30 or 40 seven-year-olds entertained whilst educating them at the same time. Going back to Mr Smith, our headmaster, I do remember one afternoon when I was in my last year of primary school that he set up the TV in our classroom when he was standing in for our class teacher. And we all spent the afternoon happily watching Lancashire playing cricket against Gloucestershire in the Gillette Cup 60 overs a side competition. But I'm sure that was a one-off. 
Anyway, having said that, the entrance of the TV was always a cause of excitement. TV was still a relatively new weapon in the educational arsenal, so using it on the basis of a little often is quite understandable. In spite of the unpredictability of when we would watch it, what programme might be on, and whether our teacher would actually be able to get the TV set to work, it will be a highlight of the day when the TV will be on, and to be fair, as well as Sam on Boff's Island, there are lots of really good programmes to watch, whether in term time or in the holidays. Others I remember include various iterations of words and pictures, mainly featuring a rather irritating flying creature called Charlie. I think that was his name. He was supposed to be, I think, part of a typewriter from memory. This show lasted a couple of decades and never lost sight of its core raison d'etre, i.e. helping children to read and to show them what new worlds reading could let them discover. There were also a lot of documentary-type programmes like Scene and Stop, Look and Listen. I can't remember which one of the programmes it was on, but a documentary from a gala pork pie factory sticks in my mind. For those of you who are not familiar with the gala pie, it's a long pork pie, which has a boiled egg running through the middle of it, all the way through, so that every slice has a ring of white and yolk in it. The documentary showed how the egg got into the pie and was spectacularly interesting, to the point that I still remember it and still remember how they did it. I won't divulge any trade secrets here, but I bet some of you are now thinking, how do they get the egg into a gala pie? The documentaries in scene were generally pretty powerful and affecting. The one I have the strongest memory of is James is Our Brother, which examined the life of James, who was born with Down syndrome, and looked at how he and his family lived together. Now remember, the 1970s was a very different time to today, and the prejudice against people with learning and other disabilities was very prevalent. Documentaries like James is Our Brother did their bit to help raise awareness of conditions like Down's, and also helped to develop the more tolerant and sympathetic approach we by and large have in Britain today. I remember seeing an update of the documentary when I was at secondary school, showing James competing in the 1980 Paralympics, where he won a bronze medal. Really heartwarming stuff. Other memorable shows included Watch, Seeing and Doing, and the social history programme, How We Used to Live, made by Granada, I think, which followed members of a family through the 19th and early 20th century. It brought alive the old black and white photos of Victorian men, women and children, and gave them real body and substance. Most of all, it impressed upon me that people in the past had ordinary lives just like ours, and it really increased my interest in history, so much so that I read history at university. Another one I remember fondly was Picture Box. This was a fairly simple premise. The presenter, Alan Rothwell, would introduce a classic piece of TV, cartoon or cinema, and then lead a discussion of it afterwards. I was introduced to all sorts of weird and wonderful short films, many of which were foreign, and I think it helped develop my lifelong love of cinema. Alan Rothwell presided over the show as a sort of benevolent dictator, 
with his soft voice bringing you as a viewer into the worlds he showed you a glimpse of. But for some reason, which I can't quite put my finger on, it was comforting, but slightly disturbing at the same time. I'm not sure the theme music helped. Alan Rothwell is forever linked to Picturebox for a generation who grew up with him in the 1970s. So it was a rather bizarre footnote when he later turned up in Brookside, the Liverpool set soap opera of the 1980s, playing Nicholas Black, who married high-flying lawyer Heather Haversham, played by Amanda Burton. Even more bizarrely, Nicholas turned out to be a heroin addict who met a nasty end with an overdose in Sefton Park. Not really what we'd expect to associate with Picture Box. In time, the advent of the video recorder killed off the daytime broadcast for schools and colleges. And we moved to a world where audio-visual technician became a job in every school which seemed to involve setting the video recorders to record programmes which were now broadcast at 3am in the morning, rather than taking away valuable daytime space. Well, now we've got YouTube videos where you can almost literally learn how to do anything. So the idea of high-quality programmes made by quality broadcasters aimed at education children seems like something prehistoric. But for those of us who went to school in the 1970s, I don't think anything can replace the excitement we felt when we heard the squeak of the TV trolley coming down the corridor and hoping, beyond hope, that it stopped outside our classroom. I'd love to hear your memories of school's TV programmes. And don't forget to let me have your questions on anything related to 1970s TV. You can get in touch on our blog at www.my70stvchildhood.com tweet at 70s TV Childhood, or you can email me, oliver, at my70stvchildhood.com. So thanks for listening, take care, and join us again soon for more from My 70s TV Childhood.